Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would see your people and hear them and come down afresh and deliver us. By the power of the gospel and the friendship of the Holy Spirit, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a seat, gang. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the man who stands with his back against the wall. It's urgent that my meaning be crystal clear. The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They're the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? Those are the words of Howard Thurman, African-American philosopher, theologian, and civil rights activist. It's from his compassionate and insightful Jesus in the disinherited. Thurman's words force us to consider the usefulness of what we're doing right now for the larger world. And it's a timely reminder in the season that we're in, the season called Lent, where there is a danger of an overabundance of spiritual individualism. What are the sins I need purged from my life? What are the disciplines I will take up? What are the sacrifices I need to make? Those are good and necessary questions, but they're not all the questions, especially in a society like ours, one that the sociologist Robert Bilal recently described as ruthlessly individualistic comprised of people caught up in private pursuits. Lenten disciplines can become ruthlessly individualistic. They can become private pursuits. They can cease to have relevance to what's happening outside the walls of this building. The Christian life can be subsumed under the entirely private pursuit of one's own spiritual growth, one's own spiritual discipline, even one's own spiritual salvation. While bringing to mind the need to care for one's own spiritual health, the traditional scriptures for Ash Wednesday that we read a few weeks ago also bring to mind the social aspects of Lent and the social aspects of the Christian life because they remind us of God's concern for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable. These readings insist that our spiritual lives are inextricably bound up in our relationship to the masses of men, to borrow Thurman's phrase, who live with their backs constantly against the wall, you might be one of them. Our reading today from Exodus is no exception to the theme. It tells us the story of a man named Moses, whose own private, comfortable life was dramatically interrupted by God. Against his protests, 
This man is sent by God into the social maelstrom of power and oppression to liberate men and women who had suffered under the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. And our reading forces us to consider what ways God might just interrupt our own ruthless individualism, calling us up and out of our private pursuits into the fray of his mission to the poor and the disinherited and the dispossessed. I'll be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. If you want to follow along, it's on page 46 of your pew Bible. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. We encounter Moses as a man out of place. Though we find him in Midian, he's an Egyptian-born Jew. What's he doing near Mount Horeb, some 700 miles from his place of birth and from his family and his people? The answer to this question is found in the previous chapter. It tells us that Moses was born a slave, and it tells us that Pharaoh of Egypt had set a policy to suppress the population growth of the Jews by drowning the male children in the River Nile. Moses escaped this fate because his mother, in a desperate attempt to save his own life, put him in a basket and sent him down the river with nothing more than a prayer. Improbably, he's rescued by a daughter of Pharaoh, and he becomes a member of the very household that was violently oppressing his own people. As a grown man, we read that Moses went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So he killed the Egyptian and he hid the body. Pharaoh learned of what had been done and he sought to have Moses executed. So Moses fled east where he married and built a life and lived anonymously in Midian he left his troubles and the suffering of his people several hundred miles in the other direction. Ultimately, it wasn't Pharaoh who tracked down this fleeing fugitive, nor was it Moses' own people who found him hiding in the desert. It was God, the God of his fathers, who appeared to him in a burning bush and ultimately thrust everything Moses had run away from right back into his lap. The Lord said... I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them from out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up and out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. As a young man, Moses 
went out to his people. And Exodus says, he looked on their burdens. And here we learn that Moses and the Lord have something in common. Because the Lord says to Moses, I too have seen what you have seen. I've seen the affliction. I too know what you know. I know about the suffering. That Hebrew word, yadah, here translated as to know, is more than knowledge of facts. That same word is used in the Old Testament to describe sexual relations. If you've ever heard an old timer say, we knew each other in the biblical sense, that's where it comes from. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew, yada. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. The kind of knowledge that's being conveyed by this word is intimate, personal, relational knowledge. And so when God says, I know their suffering, he's not saying, I know about the fact of their suffering. He's saying, I have intimate, personal, relational knowledge of what is happening to my people in Egypt. He has knowledge of his people's pain, and it's an important thing for suffering people to hear. We're in a world with as many afflictions and burdens as there are people. And people under great affliction and great suffering, they have questions. Did anybody see how unfairly I was treated? Has anybody noticed how frequently we're taken advantage of? Does anyone see how little justice we get in this society? How hopeless our lives can be. Does no one notice? Does anyone see? Well, God says, yes. I saw the whole thing. And I know what happened to you. That's not enough. Seeing and knowing, even in that sense, is not enough. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, that great theologian and anti-apartheid activist from South Africa, wrote, all of this, the seeing and the knowing, was of no real importance for the slaves. When you are a slave, what you most of all want is to be free, to be liberated. Having seen and heard, God announces what they would most want to hear. I have come down to deliver you up and out of the land of slavery to a good, broad land flowing with milk and honey. Tutu continued, this God, he is not just a talking God. This God does not just talk. He acts. He showed himself to be a doing God. Perhaps we might add another point about God. He takes sides. He is not neutral. He took the side of the slaves, the oppressed, of the victims. He, the God who takes sides, is still the same even today. He sides with the poor and the hungry and the oppressed and the victims of injustice. 
Now, for some people, such as the slaves in Egypt or Tutu's people in apartheid South Africa, it is very good news that God is not neutral. But not everyone hears that as good news. Some worry that if God takes the side of the poor and the hungry, maybe he will not take the side of Rob Sturdy. Because Rob Sturdy is not poor and Rob Sturdy is not hungry. By evidence of how tight Rob Sturdy's pants fit these days. Others might think it's unfair for God to take sides since people on all sides can be burdened with sin. God needs to take the side of the deserving, wealthy or poor. And I hear those objections frequently. I, I heard it last week, actually. I think it's a little misguided. I think it's misguided because God does not help deserving people or you would not be here. God helps people in need whether they deserve it or not, and that's the Christian doctrine of grace. But there's another reason that this is important to say out loud and many times. The early church theologian, John Chrysostom, he once remarked, the poor man has one plea, his want and his standing in need. What did he mean by that? Well, the well-off and the well-connected, unlike the poor, have many pleas they can make. They have many cards they can put on the table. People like me, the well-off and well-connected, can plead their social standing. I can plead my social standing. I can plead my reputation. Believe it or not, it's doing okay. I can plead my many friends by God's grace because I have many friends. And if all else fails, I do have resources. When I ask for help, typically people believe that I need it and assume I deserve it. When I make calls on the phone, people will pick up. If I need a side to be taken, there are many people who will take my side. But what about the poor and the hungry and the oppressed and the victims of injustice? In my experience, people are suspicious when they cry for help. Not many people believe they actually need it. Not many people believe they even deserve it. Few people will pick up the phone from someone like them. Very few people will take their side. Given that no one is there to take their side, God takes the side of the people whom no one else will take the side of. I have seen, he says, and I know I've come down to deliver. Not only does he side with the poor and the victim of injustice, but this God goes one step further because he asks you to take their side as well. Take the side, he says to Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you can bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. Who am I that I should go? I think it's understandable Moses feels overwhelmed by the task. 
But there are two important things to remember. The first thing is that Moses had seen. I don't know if you appreciate what a hard thing it would have been for Moses to see the affliction of the people. Because the only world Moses had ever known was a world where Pharaoh and the Egyptians were at the top and the descendants of Abraham were at the bottom. Moses' normal was a world where the Egyptians were free and the descendants of Abraham were slaves. If that was all Moses had ever known, how hard would it have been for him to see the wrongness of it all? Because the wrongness of it all had been normalized. How hard would it have been to see the evil in the system from top to bottom when he had no system to compare it to? It is not an easy thing to see. Who am I that I should go? You're someone that has seen. The second thing is that God promised to be with Moses. Moses objected to the divine mission of liberation five times in this brief passage. But as the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann points out, in each case, Moses' objection is overruled by the uncompromised divine resolve. Yahweh will not be distracted. This is something that God will get done because God has decided to get it done. And he will do it through this man, Moses. As Brueggemann says, Moses must go. He has his mandate in his authorization, but he won't go alone. God will go with him in the fullness of the divine resolve. You might know how the story goes. Moses does join God on his mission of liberation with ends with the ruin of Pharaoh's sinful and oppressive empire, the liberation of God's own people, no longer poor, no longer disinherited, no longer dispossessed. They've been set free from forced labor to Pharaoh, set free for loving service to God. But though the people had been set free from Pharaoh, the liberation was not complete. There remained bondage. Paul, the son of Abraham, would write many years later, the good that I want to do, I cannot do it. It's the evil I hate, I keep on doing. What is that but a description of a man in bondage? There's a spiritual tyrant who keeps people in bondage. Not to Pharaoh, but to sin. Jesus, another son of Abraham, calls this spiritual tyrant a strong man who must be overthrown by a stronger man. Luke chapter 11, verses 21 to 22. Jesus calls this spiritual tyrant the ruler of this world that needs to be cast out. John chapter 12, verse 31. In the scriptures, this tyrant is called the devil and the same scriptures teach Jesus came into the world, as the Apostle John says, to destroy the works of the devil. If you take these two things together, Moses' exodus from Egypt and Jesus' exodus from the empire of sin, death, hell, and the devil, each of them represent God's one desire for a total and comprehensive deliverance from every kind of evil. The work of liberation begun by Moses in Egypt is more deeply and comprehensively perfected by Jesus in Galilee, but nevertheless, it's the same work. 
In different degrees, God is seeking freedom for people from every kind of bondage. That would keep us as less than what God intended us to be. On Golgotha, that great tyrant of flesh and blood, Pontius Pilate, nailed Jesus to the cross. And that spiritual devil enjoyed his opportune moment as God hidden in the flesh of Jesus saw and heard and became intimately familiar with the fullness of sin and suffering and evil. As Paul says in Philippians, he made himself subject to death. No longer seeing and hearing about the affliction, but God is afflicted. God suffers under the burden. Jesus Christ swallowed whole by death on Good Friday. It's on the cross as the sun comes down from heaven that we find him speaking the same word from the cross that would have been spoken from the burning bush. Jesus, what are you doing here on the cross? I have come down to deliver them. And on Easter Sunday, since it was not possible for death to hold him, is what Peter says at his Pentecost sermon. Stepping away from the empty tomb, Jesus triumphantly departed from the fallen empire of sin and death and hell and the devil so that he can lead people up and out of every kind of bondage. Every kind of bondage to a better land where you are free to be what God made you to be. Serving him more deeply and more freely under the promise of his cross and resurrection. The old empire of sin, death, hell, and the devil is not enough rubble left to leave a shadow. This God is about deliverance. What do you make of all this? Let me give you two things to think about. If you've called upon the name of Jesus, if you're persuaded that he hears the cries of his people and you call upon the name of Jesus and you have experienced a deliverance, then that deliverance should not make you less sensitive to the affliction and burdens of others. No matter what kind they might be, it should make you more sensitive to the affliction and burdens of others because you have personal experience of how important it is to be delivered from afflictions and burdens. You have personal experience of the power of Jesus to deliver you from afflictions and burdens. We understand what a huge difference it can make. And we understand that God takes sides. Not of the deserving, but of the needy. And you want to participate. Where do you start? Let me give you something very practical to do. You need to start with what you can see. 
That's where Moses started. Start with what you can see. It's a challenge to see. I already brought that up. It's a challenge to see. If this is all you've ever known, you can excuse an awful lot of affliction and burden. If we are, as Robert Ballard described us, ruthlessly individualistic, it can be very hard to stop and see. But stopping and seeing is one of the most countercultural things Christian people can do. You do not stop and see in our society. So stop and see. I work with college students. I see anxiety and depression at the highest rates in the country. That's what I see. During the height of COVID, we had 25 people on a self-harm watch list. That's what I see. One in four of the young women I work with are going to experience sexual violence during their four years in college. That's what I see, and it's victimization without justice. And I know it. So I start with what I see. And I start with what I know. You put those two pieces together, and it's not long before you hear, I'm coming down to deliver. And I'm sending you. What do you see? In your neighbors, what do you see in your community? What do you see? What do you feel? Start there. Start there and remember that you are qualified because you see. And God will not send you on your own. He will go with you. Start with what you see. Now close with this. If you're here exploring the Christian faith, we're awash with afflictions and burdens. You might have cried out under your own burdens. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ, an ambassador with authority. To say if you've cried out and ever wondered if anybody has heard, I have authority to tell you he heard you. And he is here in person for deliverance. But I know some people that are just overwhelmed, not for themselves, but by the burdens and afflictions of the world you and I live in. Not only does God hear and know, but God has designs on your life to participate in the deliverance. How do you enter this story? Not because you deserve to, but because God wants you to be a part of it. By grace, he helps the needy. By grace, he catalyzes the compassionate. Call on the man, and he will light you aflame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be with your people. Help us see and help us know the Lord God send us to make a difference as a testimony to Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord Jesus, 
that you would help anyone that needs to call out. And that you would answer their prayer. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.